Lawmakers are away, but the red ink remains. That and more coming up next. From the Vitell studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Reginald Fields, Columbus Bureau Chief for The Plain Dealer. Karen Kassler, State House Bureau Chief for Ohio Public Radio and TV. Michael Miller, attorney and former Franklin County Prosecutor. And Catherine Terser, Legislative Director for Ohio Citizen Action. They know it's there, but until now, they have not wanted to deal with it. It is up to an $8 billion deficit in the two-year state budget. Last year, lawmakers thought they had a plan to avoid a last-minute budget crisis. They formed a committee to start working on ways to save money and or generate revenue. But one year later, halfway through the budget cycle, that committee has yet to meet, although there is some talk of meetings this summer. Karen Kastler, why haven't they met yet? Well, if you ask the members, they'll tell you this is an election year, which of course we all know, and that nobody wants to talk about this stuff right now. Nobody wants to talk about the real serious options of serious cuts or serious revenue enhancements, tax hikes. And so you have some members of the Budget Commission who are now saying, well, let's at least meet. Let's at least get out there and talk about this. And let's propose a date of June 29th. Well, the, some of the Democrats on the committee had said, no, let's wait until the budget, the first year of the budget is over. Let's close the books on that. Let's meet July 7th. But the real issue is we're not arguing yet over what to cut or what taxes to raise. We're arguing over when to meet. So that may set a tone for what happens here as we go down the road. They don't have to deal with it because the budget doesn't come in until the following year. Well, do, do we expect this to really get anything done before Election Day? And it's only an advisory committee anyway. Yeah. What they do would certainly not, I mean, we all have to go to the legislature, but what they want to come up with is some ideas. You know, we keep hearing everything's on the table. Everything is potentially up for grabs or up for cutting, and, and that's what we really want to hear from this commission is what exactly is on the table, what can be cut. Reporters are certainly going to ask the candidates, both for governor and any other office and legislators, of what they're going to do. So this topic's not going to go away, Reggie, right? No, it's, it's not. And uh, Karen's exactly correct. I mean, they've, they've been telling us since March that they were going to meet. Uh, we, there were a couple of dates set even back then, and they did not meet. And so now we're back to asking the same questions, exactly when are you going to meet? Uh, they don't want to have to deal with this. I'm going into an election year, and it's just clearly, but the the problem they've created for themselves at this point now is the longer they wait, the closer you actually get to the election day, and they're going to have to talk about this at some point. And one of the things we do hear often is, well, we don't really know how big the budget deficit is. It could be $4 billion. It could be $8 billion. And so you have some candidates and some, I mean, the entire House is up for re-election, a third of the Senate, and obviously we have a governor's race here. So we're still dealing with that issue that people are saying we don't know how big this issue is, so why do we get in there and deal with it now? <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't really think anybody is going to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, it because of these very reasons, it's an election thing. Uh, who is going to stand up with the election less than five months away and say to cover this $8 billion, we're going to have to either A, raise taxes, or B, 
cut substantially, and we're going to cut this program and this program and this you program. Know, I don't think anybody's going to say that. They're going to ignore it until the election's you over. You do have John Kasich, though, who is saying, I will no not taxes. raise taxes. Right. So at least you do have somebody who is saying something, though that but is that a pledge that is problem. tremendously broad in a way. But people are very, very annoyed with incumbents. And part of that has to do with the fact that they are not accountable. The fact that they procrastinate like this and don't actually make, at least go through the process of getting information to prepare for next year. Can you imagine procrastinating because you you don't actually know how much you're actually going to owe? I mean, I, I, you know, we're talking b b billions of dollars. Billions! But what's going to make voters more angry? Procrastinating on raising taxes or raising taxes? Being, I'm not just talking about procrastination. I'm not talking about being un not accountable. Not saying, hey, let's be, we, we are in a situation, one of the worst economic situations that we've had for years and years and years, and leaders need to stand up. Leaders do that. They lead. They give you information. I, you know, this whole, oh, it's all politics is so irritating. What's left to cut? Assuming there is at least a $4 billion deficit, what's left to cut? Well, there's already, already been talk about trying to consolidate some of the uh, state uh, agencies even, maybe some of the state boards and, and commissions and different things of that nature. So maybe you can try to do that. Maybe you can save some money in those areas. Um, the, the big danger, of course, is is cutting some of the, the social service programs, which was discussed the, the last time that they had the, the big edu uh, budget you know, uh, arguments uh, last summer. So, I mean, there's areas there to cut, but, I mean, we're, we're pretty thin already, and in some of those those areas, and that was the big fight of a year ago. And you've got some think tanks and some groups out there that are putting forward their ideas. Uh, one of the more progressive-leaning ones is saying if you close a whole lot of these loopholes and you take these tax credits and tax breaks that have been given out over the years, you save $7 billion. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a more conservative group that's saying, well, if we pull back on what they call these gold-plated benefit plans for state employees, then you pull back $2 billion. And, but those are really dicey issues because you're talking about taking away tax benefits that people have enjoyed. You're talking about taking away benefits that state workers have had. These are really, really tough things, and, and uh, nobody wants to talk about that, especially when you're up for re-election. I think also uh, there are some people who are hoping that there's going to be another federal stimulus mm -hmm. that's going to come through, yep. and if that were to come through, certainly uh, Ohio is not going to get $8 billion to fill that entire hole, but certainly uh, if that were to happen, it would get some, so that would address part of the problem. It's not going to address the entire problem, though. Well, and waiting for magic money is just irritating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's putting me in a crump. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Michael, what are the chances of another tax cut delay? I can't delay any more tax cuts, so that, that leaves tax increases on the table. Well, I don't know. As, as Karen said, uh, uh, Kasich has, has announced that you know, he'll sign some pledge, there'll be no more taxes, and obviously Governor Strickland has said he's opposed to it, yeah. hasn't said the pledge or so forth. But, I, you know, to me, the answer, I don't know how they can cut $8 billion. It seems like there's going to have to be additional taxes somewhere. But I don't believe anybody is going to say anything of any of a definitive nature until the election's over. Because if you cut this social service, uh, as Reggie puts it, there's a group of people that are most upset. It's all right if you cut, you know, somebody else's. Just don't cut mine. Well, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be cut, and so they're not going to discuss it. I don't think. Now, education really fared fairly well, all things considered, in the mm -hmm. last budget cycle. They are not going to escape this time around. 
Well, I don't know how you make, though, that argument if you're running for office, if you mm -hmm. make those cuts yep. in education, oh my gosh, you don't care about the kids. Yep. It's the same idea of if you want to, you know, maybe reform prison sentencing guidelines, suddenly you're soft on crime. These are really, it's a tough time to campaign right now and to try to make cuts in areas that you can identify. Your opponent can come back and say, well, you obviously don't care about this issue. Okay. Another thing lawmakers have failed to address is districting reform. That's the process by which lawmakers draw up legislative district maps. It's now done by the Ohio Apportionment Board, which has three members, the governor, the auditor, and the secretary of state. Now, the party that controls at least two of those offices draws the districts. Plans to give the task to a bipartisan commission or use a different formula went nowhere this past legislative session, at least in the spring. Catherine Terser, let's start with this question. Why is this important? Why does drawing of legislative district maps why is this process important? Well, it's important because if you can, if you can imagine, basically rigging the map so you, so that politicians can select their voters. You know, if if you can say, for example, let's say you have a county that, that is a Democratic in the center, in, in the city, and then surrounding it you have the suburbs, right, which is more Republican. Let's say you just cut out a district, a donut district, just like Montgomery County, and you have, for example, Senator Husted's district this Republican district that goes all the way around like a donut. And so that's an example of the kind of shenanigans you can do. Let's say you don't like, for example, you're worried about a challenger and you're, you, you could, for example, cut out their house. There are all sorts of ways you can do shenanigans. We are the only country in the entire world that actually lets the politicians draw their own maps. It's about fairness. Now, Senator Houston was pushing the bipartisan commission, didn't go anywhere, why not? Well, because they couldn't, <laughs> they just couldn't agree with one another on how to to do this for exactly the reasons as Catherine it's it's saying because uh, there's going to be a winner and it's going to be a loser. Uh, the thing is, is, if you keep it, uh, the reason why I think there is some interest right now is because of the current system. Um, with the apportionment board system, what is it, the auditor, the governor, and the secretary of yeah. state, if you can, uh, political parties, if you control two of those three, then you're going to get to draw the lines that are going to stand for the next 10 years. So it, it is very important in, in that regard. So they want a full loaf, they don't want a half a loaf. Well, and the other thing is. is, you said it didn't go anywhere, but when you think about it, it, a redistricting reform measure made its way all the way through both the House and the Senate. Well, that hasn't happened ever. Um, so, so we're getting close. And I think when you look at this problem, you know, um, it came about, you know, 1790, Patrick Henry was mad at James Madison and tried to make it so his district basically was difficult. So this is a long-term problem. Well, I want to know, a year ago, you were saying things like, this is the first opportunity, this is the opportunity is because no, but there were no clear winners. Nobody was a sure thing for, to own the house, to uh, win the governor's office. This was going to be the year. What happened? Okay, so, well, this is a hard thing because if we can't actually get this done now, when it's not really clear who's going to have control of the apportionment board, who's actually going to have control of the legislature, Maybe we're not going to get it done. And I think that's the thing that's been the most depressing. I've really been in this mode, well, come down back. They, they don't have to. They could come back. What, a summer vacation that goes from June until what? You know, November, basically. Come on. Come on back and take care of it. The other and thing I, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's. Uh, probably precisely why you were able to get a bill through the Democratic-controlled House and a separate bill through the uh, Republican-controlled Senate, because no one really knows who is going to ultimately be in control of that apportionment board. So maybe we should kind of pull back and play our cards a little yeah. bit safer.
Well, there's something else, too, I think you could do. Uh, let's face it, the Democrats want to keep their advantage as they see it, and the Republicans want to keep theirs as they see it. I mean, that's life. That's the way things are going to be. But I would think if you could structure something that was reasonably fair, but you say that it does not take effect until the year 2020 or something, 10 years down the road. Yeah. And the people here say, well, I'm not going to be there, so it's really not going to affect me. And the other guy says, it ain't going to affect me. And they might do something that's fair, and you actually get And I think it's important because we have these situations now where this Democrat's assured he's going to win, nobody can beat him. This re Republican is assured he or she's going to win, nobody can beat him. And so when they get to vote, there's no room for compromise or anything. They know they're going to be returned to their position. And I just think it's, it, it uh, leads to a government that doesn't function very well. Now, Catherine mentioned that. We are, we are next year going to celebrate the bicentennial of gerrymandering. This is not new. <laughs> I mean, is there any, this is... 200 so, years. So is, it ever gonna, so is it ever going to go away? You know, it's interesting because, you know, last week they made this compromise where they decided that the bullfrog was going to be the state frog and then the, that in the um, state amphibian was going to, to be the salamander, the spotted salamander. And I kept thinking, you know, what about the gerrymander? <laughs> I mean, what about it? What about the gerrymander? And it... In some ways, it seems ludicrous to think that we could take care of a problem that's existed for so long. But why not? You know, we need some democracy in our democracy. We need something fair. Okay. Our next topic, Ohio Treasurer Kevin Boyce faces questions about the firms the Treasurer's office chooses to help manage the state's money. The Plain Dealer has reported this week the Treasurer selected State Street Bank of Boston to manage $32 billion in the Ohio pension funds. But it comes as the bank faces charges it defrauded California's two largest pension funds. The bank's chief lobbyist is a friend of Boyce's top deputy. And last summer, the Dayton Daily News, which has also been on this story, reported that KeyBank hosted a fundraiser for Boyce just days after KeyBank won a contract to process state checks. The Treasurer's Office maintains politics had nothing to do with these decisions, and it says combined, both moves will save taxpayers millions of dollars. Reggie Fields, Republicans have jumped on this all, already. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different tentacles to this story that uh, they're very interesting, but also it just kind of leads back to uh, questioning the treasurer's judgment in a lot of areas. And there are some areas where he has not uh, addressed questions. He's been asked questions. He's actually sent some of his deputies or someone else to answer for him. Uh, I think he probably needs to answer some of these questions because it does at least uh, lead to the appearance that maybe his office has been, uh, you know, available for those who want to pay to play. Now, in his defense, as he has said, that um, the decisions that he has made to this point, he says are going to save money later down the line, that he's changed the process. And so maybe uh, in that regard, maybe you give him a benefit of the doubt and you'll wait and we'll see. This is part of the, I mean, it, we, we saw this with the Attorney General's office a few years ago. When these offices, these offices aren't big enough to handle everything, so they have to contract out with private firms. Private firms donate to campaigns, both sides. So there's always going to be this inherent conflict here. Would you, would you say, Michael, I mean, no matter what happens, no matter what safeguards are taken? Well, I think so. Uh, some of it is going to be there. It's just it comes with the territory. And I, I think Reggie's right that some of the decisions that he has made uh, are questionable. I don't know about the suit that was filed against the Boston firm by uh, California's Attorney General uh, Jerry Brown, Brown. Jerry yeah. Brown. Uh, whether it has any validity to it or not, uh, you know, who knows, and we'll have to wait till those things go through the court system. But the very fact that uh, he's got, you know, friends uh, in the office who are friends of the lobbyists from that particular bank in Boston and so forth, you know, it just conjures up, 
kind of a good old boy type of thing. And uh, whether it's right or wrong, I think the Republicans will make some hay out of it or certainly try. Already have. I already have. The uh, candidate who's running against Kevin Boyce, Josh Mandel, has already seized on this and, and made it an issue, calling it corruption and, and trying to push it forward. Though, like the uh, situation in the governor's office with the uh, trooper gate, shortened form. It's hard to explain to people in certainly a 30-second campaign ad or hard to make it really crystal clear on a bumper sticker or whatever. So that's yeah. the challenge whenever you try to use these complicated issues in a campaign. Catherine, what's the s solution? Well, I don't, uh, you know, there are a couple of different things that we could do. For example, you know, we could actually say that, um, that that people that want contracts with the states can't make campaign contributions. We could address, we could address kind of the, what I think of as cronyism. Okay, so in this particular case, um, you know, Boyce's office hired the lobbyist's wife. And, you know, there wasn't a public announcement. There was the only the announcement, basically, that was done at the mosque. It'd be like, hey, I went down to my local church or I went down, you know, to my, my local community group and I said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to hire. Well, they're bound to be your friends that do it. And do we really want rampant cronyism? I, so, so there are things that we can do to address kind of that, that aspect. I, I mean, as a candidate, though, or as, or as, as, office, as an office holder, I mean, maybe you shouldn't do things that make it so obvious that maybe there's something going on here. I mean, that might help also. I mean, in this case, uh, you, you know, you, you hire uh, or the bank hires a lobbyist uh, here in Columbus right around the time when the bids are due. And meanwhile, he's just hired the lobbyist's wife a month earlier. I mean, maybe you shouldn't just do all those things so close together and make it a fundraiser a week after you get a contract. Well, as they always say, people get caught because they're not so smart. I mean, <laughs> well, don't you have to look at this from a like a, a wider view, a ten thousand foot view, and say, how would the outside person see this? I mean, I know what I'm doing, and I believe in what I'm doing, but how is this going to be perceived by people who don't don't work in this office? Okay. Our next topic, law and policies are in place to encourage governments to use local firms and minority-owned firms when awarding government contracts. But how much extra should government pay to make that happen? It was an issue that faced the Columbus School Board recently. The superintendent wanted to hire the lowest bidder on a school bus contract. Some members of the board wanted to hire a small, local African-American-owned firm, even though hiring that firm would cost the district and taxpayers an extra million dollars. Michael Miller, building a diverse workforce and a diverse contractor list should be the goal. How much extra should government be willing to pay to make that happen? Well, it's a goal, but I, I, I don't think it should be paid for. I mean, I think very little. I, I, when, I, when I looked at the, uh, the school board thing with the buses and so forth, uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty contentious, apparently, on, on, the, on the sole issue. And there was a group that said we ought to hire this minority firm, even though it costs the citizens an extra million dollars for the same service. Uh, in fact, somebody uh, spoke out there and said, if you don't, there'll be ramifications or something. Yeah. I mean, it almost sounded like a coercive nature. I, I, I just don't think they should do it. Uh, I know there's also government rules or Supreme Court stuff against set-offs and so forth. Uh, it, it's a nice goal to have, and I'd like to get there uh, openly and above board and do all that. But whether the government should come in and spend money for it, uh, I, my personal opinion is they should not. There are other factors here. The first student is the company that won the contract. Of course, they were caught up in a controversy a few years ago with they hadn't done background checks on some Correct. of their drivers. So there was some other, they had some baggage, but the local firm said, we cannot compete with the big giant. And that's the, f this firm, other firms, 
all face when they're trying to compete with a large contractor. Well, the local coffee shop can't compete with Starbucks either. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way it is. And do we have the government come in and say, all right, we're going to keep the local coffee shop and we're going to subsidize them? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't do that. What you try and do, if people around there uh, will say, well, we want to support this local group. We live here and we're going to go to that local coffee shop. I mean, that's, that's uh, a chance to keep them in business and have some form of uh, business equality uh, without government subsidies. And I, I think that's the way it ought to be done. It comes back to an idea of what do you want government to do, and that's an issue that, as we talk about tax increases and that sort of thing, what do you want the government to actually do? And that is an exact example of that. Do you want the government to help make itself look more like the community? What, what do you want to happen? And that's that's a, a classic example of it, in my opinion. Uh, so how do we, how do we? It's, it's the whole affirmative action de debate. I mean, it really, is what it is. I mean, how do we, how do we make sure it happens? Well, in the casino legislation, mm -hmm. it doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, the Casino Rules Commission that was created this week, uh, there was some move to try to make minority hiring goals part of that, and that was rejected. Um, there was the uh, alternative energy tax credits measure that also passed, mm -hmm. and that was left out of that as well. And so you have a lot of legislators, um, African-American legislators, who are saying this isn't fair, that we should at least try to do some of this with one of these measures, especially with the casino issue, because certainly that's an issue that's been a little bit controversial in many different areas. Just a little, little bit. bit. Just a little <laughs> bit. All right, time for sports, or maybe it's time for business news. <laughs> it's hard to separate the two these days, even in the so-called amateur world of college athletics. It looks like the Big Ten, which is really the Big 11, will become at least the Big 12, while the Big 12 has become the Big Ten and could become the Little Five, while the Pac-10, that's the Pacific Ten, could become neither, Ten nor Pacific-based. Confused? The simple explanation is major college football conferences are consolidating to corner the market on hundreds of millions of dollars. Michael Miller, a longtime sports fan, is this further proof that big-time college football is just a professional league? Well, I won't say just a professional league, but is it driven like a lot of other things in life by money? Absolutely it is. And uh, apparently the Pac-10, from, from what I've seen, uh, ranks absolutely last uh, per, per school on, among the major conferences and in money that is actually given to them by the conference. They, only, they only got $97 million. Uh, was that, <laughs> that what, uh, the conference? Yeah, the conference, yes. But that's divided ten ways. Yeah. And, and the Big Ten was 280 or something. Yeah. It was... Yeah. You know, appreciably more, and, and so I think we're going to see it. It's all money-driven. Uh, uh, hopefully it will be done in a, in a decent fashion, not to just throw, uh, you know, everything overboard in the, in the guise of uh, football. And I don't think it will be. I, I think the Big Ten will probably end up being the Big 14 or something like that, and obviously the Pac-10 has already expanded. It was, you know, as we sit here, one, yeah. and we know more is coming. But it's money-driven, clearly. Here's what f the Forbes magazine blog wrote about college football. What we are seeing is the normal consolidation of the major players which occurs in any business sector as it matures. Hardly the, describing the student-athlete experience, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, but I think Michael is, 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 is exactly correct. Football, with, football drives most of the athletic programs um, you know, at all of these schools, and they're realizing that there's actually a lot more money that they can make. You mentioned the $97 million. It's probably 
double or triple that that they can actually make. Yeah, they said they're going to 256 million. Exactly. They expand you know, teams. by consolidating, and where this is really leading us, hopefully, is is to a college football uh, playoff, and that's going to be even more money later on down the line. Everyone's not like in Ohio State, where you can draw a hundred thousand, you know, fans every every week uh, to your home games and and everything. A lot of these other schools are are struggling, and so if you can bring more money to the pie, which is what makes the Big Ten and these conferences more attractive to some of these other schools. You, you kind of get in there, there's going to be more money coming in that gets divided up. You get more money than what you're maybe currently getting from your current conference. If they consolidate as they, the 16, four 16 team conferences, so that's, you know, 32, 64, you know, teams, that leaves about 150 other schools out. Ohio University, University of Toledo, Cincinnati, perhaps. What, what about those schools? Don't they get a piece of the pie, too? Apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, but, you know, obviously those schools have their fans, and, and I, I, but I don't know that necessarily, you know, OU fans would want to see their team in some of these conferences. I mean, it's a totally different experience, totally different team, totally different attitude in a way. About antitrust, the, the U.S. Department of Justice was looking at this back at the beginning part of the year because I think Boise State was left out of the bowl picture. Um, any chance that if they do consolidate that uh, there's an antitrust claim against this, Mr. Turney? Well, I'm not an antitrust <laughs> attorney, but, but uh, my guess is a claim may be one thing, but uh, a, a result would be something quite different. And I imagine Boise State and all of those are, are led by local senators who are doing something to uh, gain the yeah. uh, affection of the residents who love Boise State. And uh, we're, it's not going to go any further than that. All right. <laughs> Always be with us, like gerrymandering, right? <laughs> it's time now for our off-the-record parting shots, some predictions, final words. Catherine Turser, you're up first. Uh, um, you know, my, my word is baby come back. I want the legislature to come back and do it right this time. Redistricting. Redistricting. Okay. Not, no more salamanders or No, bullfrogs. exactly. Okay. All right. Michael. I think that uh, getting to the baseball thing with a good story we had this week on the not-so-perfect game or whatever one wants to call it, uh, I think Cleveland's going to be a sellout this uh, Sunday for the uh, kid from Washington who's Steven coming Strasburg, in with a great yeah. background. And their last or dead last in attendance in the major leagues. And I'd love to see the Jake, as I still call it that, filled with 40-some <laughs> thousand people up there. It would be very nice to see. All right. Karen. Well, along with the budget mess that's brewing, $4 billion, $8 billion, whatever it is, you have uh, a problem with the unemployment compensation fund. It is broke. It's been broke since January. We've borrowed $2 billion. We're going to borrow $3 billion by the end of the year. Next year, we've got to start paying interest on it. Unlike the Budget Commission, the Unemployment Compensation Council is actually meeting. They're not deciding anything, but they're meeting. So it's interesting to see how we're handling these two things. Okay. And Reggie? We've talked election year already, and obviously you cannot run a successful election without money. And today is a post-primary uh, finance filing deadline. And I think you'll see that uh, Governor Strickland, who has been doing a lot of campaigning over these last few months, is probably going to uh, pull in a lot more money this time around than his challenger, John Casey. Okay. All right. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. We urge you to continue the discussion at our website, WOSU.org. And there you can follow us on Facebook. You can get a link to our Facebook page. So for our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.